Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step -step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. Right? It's the diet. It's always the diet. When you work for a pet food company, it's always the diet. I can tell you that. But actually, I, I think that that actually leads to, to a funny but fair point that um, diet will never fix bad conditioning or bad training. Diet is a complement to good training and good conditioning. Have you ever shot a bird that just keeps on flying and you're standing there saying, I swear I hit that bird? Well, good news. Maybe it might not be you, but rather your shotgun. Go check out uplandguncompany.com and construct the perfect shotgun that is not only built to your exact physical specifications, but your preferred looks as well. To some people, a shotgun not only has to perform, but look good while doing it also. Upland Gun Company has made this process super convenient and surprisingly affordable when you consider all of the completely customizable features. Get your shotgun order submitted today so you're standing there with your dog saying fetch rather than standing there still saying, I couldn't have missed that bird. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode presented by Standing Stone Supply. My guest this episode is Jill Klein, Dr. Jill Klein with Yukonuba. Uh, Jill, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. You know, I, I always try and do a, a, enough check-ins with the nutrition side of things because it is one of the most important things or important decision decisions that we can make for our dogs. And uh, you come highly recommended from uh, my buddy Jim over at Yukonuba, and he said that you are the person to talk to that can actually put into words what a lot of us uh, normal folks that speak just regular English would care about, right? Oh, that's a nice way of saying it. I'll use a lot of words. That's probably fair. <laughs> well, go ahead and introduce yourself, kind of tell everybody uh, how you landed doing the work that you do and, and what you focus on with Yukonuba. So again, my name is Jill Klein and I am a, I have a PhD in non-ruminant nutrition, which means that I have an interest in the nutrition of things with one stomach, dogs, cats, people, horses, bears, um, not giraffes, not deer. Um, and I, my title at 
Yukonuba is um, manager of professional and veterinary engagement, which means that I get to do things like this, talk to people like yourself about my favorite subject, which is happy nutrition news, um, how to feed, how to feed dogs that, that have jobs and um, want to get better at their jobs rather than sick dogs. So you have a, a essentially an interest and passion for working dogs, or as you put it, dogs with jobs, right? They earn their living. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, just a side little little contextual story. I grew up with a weekend warrior father in terms of hunting. And so um, as the third daughter, he gave up on having sons and decided to make me as um, boy-like as possible by dragging me out to go hunting and horseback riding with him. So, um, I followed bef- behind a, a, a few bird dogs and a few retrievers when I was growing up. Mm, so you have the backstory. Where are we at now with your dogs? What, what current dogs do you have current, uh, right now? Um, right now we have three Nova Scotia duck tolling retrievers and a Brittany Spaniel. Nice. And are they, are they working? Are they earning their keep? Um, depends on your definition of earning your keep. Um, <laughs> right now, nobody's hunting. Um, everybody comes from hunting stock. Um, but we're not hunting right now. So we do, yeah. we do agility, we do water sports, we do a lot of all, but we don't, we're not actively hunting at this moment. Okay. Is that just, did you kind of fall out of the hunting once your dad kind of got out of it or you outgrew it, I guess? Uh, I, I would say that um, I don't think it would be fair to be a weekend warrior with the dogs I have. So we have to give them a different kind of structure um, in, instead of weekend warrior hunting. But my husband is is an avid hunter. He just um, he isn't as good of a dog trainer as I am, perhaps. Yeah, uh, I'm sure he'll appreciate that shot right there. Uh, th- well, let's let's qualify what is considered a working dog, because like you said, you do agility and obedience and stuff like that. But is all work kind of created equal when it comes to dogs? And how do we kind of start as dog owners start trying to like qualify that within the requirements that each kind of job or task requires nutritionally? I don't know if that made any sense at all. Yeah, sure. Um, it, 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 it's um, a good way of presenting it. So when we talk about dogs who are working, we kind of qualify it based on the number of hours that they work per day and the number of hours and the how strenuous that work is then dictates the nutritional needs if we're if we're going to tie it back to nutrition the nutritional needs of those dogs so for example um my dogs work probably 2 to to 3 hours a day so um these guys eat um exercise because they they work about a half day um and there are some dogs who do less activity than that but it might be more anaerobic, intense, you know, like the fly ball guys, or, um, some people who are just doing something really short term in activity. And those guys don't need quite as much nutrition because basically what they're doing is having a spike versus the dogs that you all, you, um, work with your guys usually are working four to six to eight hours a day. Um, at least during hunting season, sometimes 12, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, those guys have a, a much higher calorie need. Um, and in terms of management, they, the recovery management is different for a dog who's working four plus hours compared to a dog who's working less than half a day. Yeah. And that makes sense. I mean, anaerobic work uh, compared to aerobic work, especially when you start getting into those, that longer duration, the endurance, once you kind of tap into that, the reserve, so to speak with the dogs, 
you know, it, it requires different fuel. It's the same thing with us too. You know, if we go out there and do short burst energy mm. stuff like sprints or something, yeah, you, you're going to burn some, some calories and energy and you got, you're going to have to replenish that. But if you go out and run a half marathon or a marathon, the type of fuel that you're going to need to intake is going to look a little different. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So when, when we start looking at the types of activity, especially let's go with the on and off season, you know, for, for what we do with hunting dogs, hunting, we're, we're out there, we're chasing birds, we're running a lot, you know, during the off season, even though we, I keep, especially me personally, I keep my dog's exercise routine pretty high up there, but I'm still not out there hunting for four five, six hours on end. So what they are burning is a little different. So when we start trying to factor in how much exercise activity we're getting and how much nutritional value they need, is it best to look at it in terms of how much we feed them or the formula that we feed them, if that makes any sense? So it's a really good question, Nick. And there's sort of two ways you can approach this this question. The first way to approach this question is to say, okay, so I'm not working as hard, um, but I want to keep them on the food that they're on. And so as an example, perhaps you're feeding in in our case, it would be something like Yukonuba performance. Um, and that you're feeding, say, sport, which is a 30-20 product. You can choose to keep them on that type of diet. Um, and then you would just have to scale back the amount of food that you're feeding in order to maintain appropriate body condition score. The problem with that approach is that diets are designed to be fed between 75% to 120% of the recommended feeding range. So for example, if you have a dog who based on its weight and activity level is meant to eat four cups a day and you, in order to maintain appropriate body weight, have to feed two cups a day during the off season, then in fact, you're feeding less than 75% of the recommended daily amount. In that case, the problem is that you are decreasing the micronutrient content in the diet and your dog may then long-term suffer from some sort of subclinical micronutrient deficiencies just because you're not feeding them enough volume of food. Because remember that when we design pet food, we design the micronutrient content to be based on a calorie level. So if we say your dog needs a thousand calories and you're only feeding 500, then the percent of those micronutrients isn't enough because we presume that you're going to feed a thousand calories because that's what we told you to do. Does that make sense in terms of the first example? Absolutely. It, yeah, it does. Um, the second scenario would be to switch to a dog that has a similar ingredient profile and a similar micronutrient profile, but that's lower in calories. And then in that case, for us, it would be going from sport to um, exercise, which is a 2616 product. Um, it has essentially the same ingredients, but we just scale back on the calorie content. Keep fiber about the same so that the dogs get fewer calories, but they get the right amount of micronutrients because you're feeding them the amount that, that we recommend for that age and size category and activity level. A couple of things to keep in mind. So to finish that part up, if you do that and you choose to, to switch diets and you're coming up on season, then we recommend that you switch back to sport in our case, or switch back to a higher calorie diet with similar ingredients and micronutrient levels and start about two weeks in advance. If you can, it takes seven days to sort of switch over from one diet to the next. And it takes an additional week or so for the body to go, Oh, wait, 
I need to start manufacturing these amounts of enzymes to manage this calorie load that I haven't seen in a while. In general, it takes about, depending on on what body process you're looking at, anywhere from one to three to seven weeks to switch over fully. But in terms of being able to see the difference in performance, you should be able to see the difference in performance in about the seven to 14 day point when you switch over diets. If you stay with the diets that have similar ingredient profiles, because that's what the body's adjusting to the most in terms of the uh, bacteria in the gut and the enzymes required to manage the digestion of those things. I wanted to circle back Nick, and and just ask you, because I mentioned a couple of things um, when we were just discussing that topic that I don't know if your listeners understand. Have you spent time um, in the past talking about body condition scores? Uh, we have not, not that I can recall. Okay. So if you don't mind, I'd like to chat about that because otherwise everybody's going to be like, great, uh, this is a word I don't know. And I, okay, lady, whatever. When I talk about body condition score, this is a validated scoring, visual scoring of your dog from one to nine. And that visual score is it's subjective, of course, but it's it's been quantified to be at a certain percentage of body fat for each score in general. The body condition score of of sporting dogs during season runs around three and a half to four. Now, if I give you perspective for that, um, the average American dog's body condition score is about a six. Um, those are the guys, and not to make fun of my lab friends, but I'm going to make fun <laughs> of my lab friends. Those are the Labradors whose butts are so big, you can put a dinner plate on them. That's <laughs> those, those, those guys. Um, they are not supposed to look like a sausage. They should have a waist. Um, a three and a half, on the other hand, would be something like your typical working uh, German short hair. So from the top, they have an hourglass shape. From the side, there's a clear difference between the chest and the abdomen. They tuck up really nice. Um, sometimes you can see a couple of ribs uh, in the back ribs. Kind of how I tell people to evaluate their dogs is if they're going to do a body condition scoring of their own dog and they don't have this handy dandy um, nine point chart, what they can do is use their hand as sort of a, a guide. So as an example, if I, if I said to you, run your, run your hands along your dog's ribs from their shoulders to the end of their ribs and feel for the amount of cover there, if the amount of, of fat covering across their ribs feels like the palm, the palm of your hand where your fingers join it, that sort of fat puffy spot right there. If that's what your dog feels like, your dog is has too much condition or he has a high body condition score, um, more than appropriate. If, however, you run your hands over your dog and it feels like your knuckles when you make a fist, so you can feel the ribs individually like that and there's a divot in between, that's a dog who has too low of a body condition score, even during hunting season. And I know that sometimes some of our guys can get pretty ribby, um, particularly some some of um, the pointers can get pretty ribby, but that's still not enough cover. Now, if you hold your hand straight up and you run your hand over your knuckles, that's what your dog should feel like. That's a three and a half, four, four and a half, depending on on how your dog is built. And that's what your dog should feel like all of the time. So in the off season, your dog should feel like that so that they don't have to work really hard to get back in condition. And of course, during season, you want them to feel like that because that's going to be top condition. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that, that's a that's a great kind of starting point for folks listening to this as you kind of gave them something that they can actually 
touch and feel on the back side of their hand with the knuckles, go compare that to the ribs. Cause you always hear from people like, Oh, you should, you should just barely be able to see the ribs. And then, but then that doesn't take into consideration the type of dog you have, their coat, you know, it, it, it gets kind of hairy, uh, for, 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 for a lack of a better term on, on that. When people just go and look at their dog and they're like, well, I can't see any ribs. It's they're too fat, but it's like, well, now nah, you're just, it's got a thicker coat or wire coat or, or what have you. So that's a good kind of measuring trick, uh, for those listening. Yeah. I'm, you know, for somebody who has three tollers, if I don't put my hands on, I have no idea what they look like. Yeah. Um, and, and all three of my tollers have different coat types. So we have to do hands-on inspections and I keep a log of, um, even though the types of activities we do, um, aren't necessarily seasonal, I keep a log of, of how they feel to me. Um, so that, so that I can kind of gauge them and, and adjust food as needed based on that. So circling back to, to the point that brought us to the, the body, uh, score chart, when you talk about these formulas are designed to feed within 75% to 125% of, of the nutrition requirement or, or, or uh, the suggested quantity, are we talking about just if you look at the back of the bag and it says if your dog weighs you know 40 pounds, it should be getting fed this much, and so we can kind of scale up that way, or are we talking about 75 to 125% based on the caloric requirement or need that we're after? Because I'm, I'm kind of curious how do we gauge the actual caloric need? You know, I can't go strap my Garmin watch onto my dog and kind of figure out how much calories they're burning as well as not burning in off days and stuff like that. So is body weight still kind of the best measurement tool for this if we don't know the exact caloric usage day to day? Body weight is the, the best gauge. Um, and it, it, it's a good question for me to clarify. We have the ability to track calorie needs um, and make calorie need predictions, but that's my job as a nutritionist. And then it's my job to translate that to the bag, which is why we have the recommendations that we do on the bag. That's also why it's really important to pick a food that's built for the things that your dog is doing. Because as an example, if you were feeding an adult maintenance diet and you had a 50 pound dog, the amount of the amount of food you would be suggested to feed that dog is going to be different than if you have a performance dog who you are feeding knowing that they're doing activities. So you have to pick the right food for the right job because the calorie content of the diets are different. The antioxidant content of the diet is different. The digestive health content of the diet is different. So if you take two bags and you look at the back of them and you say, okay, I have a 50 pound dog. This bag says I should feed four cups a day. Um, and this bag says I should feed seven cups a day. Why are they so different? Calorie content is primary reason, but there are some other reasons that are involved there too. So yeah, um, we do, a, we spend a lot of time developing the feeding directions. So we suggest that we use those as a basis. Um, mm -hmm. The caveat to that is what we cannot take into account, which is really important in sporting dogs is the calorie burn associated with antici anticipation or with, with being geared up to do activities. We know that a lot of times dogs will burn a lot of calories anticipating getting ready to, to do their job. And so that's when you have to make some adjustments based on your individual dog. Some of those guys burn a lot of brain power, if you will, just waiting, waiting to get on the line or um, waiting to get out of the truck. Right. And that's something that I've actually seen with my own dogs is when I hit the, hit the road, 
you know, just the anxiety, the anticipation, as you described it, it's like, even if we're not going on a hunting trip, even if we're just traveling, they, you know, they associate the kennels in the back of the truck with, oh, we're going to have fun. We're going to hunt. We're going to do what I love. And they just, they, they act different on the road. Even if we're just going to visit, you know, grandma and grandpa down, down the road, it's like they get there and they're just hungrier. Like they respond more, they, they eat faster. And so, you know, dogs, whether they've even hit the gr- touched the ground and actually burned physical calories, to your point, I guess, the, the brain calories is what you just called it. I like that is it, it does change up their their daily requirement, at least what they're asking for, so to speak, uh, when you get to your destination or just traveling from night to night. Yeah, there's there was a, a researcher. His name is Rob Gillette, and he was at Auburn University for several years before he went into industry. And he did some great work looking at calorie burn due to anticipation, and it and he did it in pointers. And he could show that that there was um, a fairly decent increase in calorie needs based simply on sitting on the wagon waiting for their turn. Now that's that's a really good point. Um. Going back to the 75 to 125%, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I know that, you know, it. how exact is this? Because let's say that I'm already feeding the 30-20. I'm feeding the sport. We're in hunting season. How often do you come across to where some dogs, by the way they're being worked and used, require more than 125% of the recommended usage on the back of the bag, but there's not another formula to go up to that next tier what do you kind of propose to that? Is that where supplements or adding certain other things is advisable? Yeah, um, we actually don't see it very often. Um, on the Yukonuba line, we have one more diet that that you could go to called work, um, but it's it's only available to professionals um, because um, we don't. So someone like yourself who does this for a living and has a kennel of dogs that are working really long hours, um, if somebody has a dog like that, then they would um, have to go through the professional channel to get this diet, but that's it. That is a sled dog diet. Um, in general, most of the time I don't see, uh, sporting dogs that need more if they do, um, or they need a tiny bump. My recommendation actually is to combine it with some canned food. Um, and, and the reason for that is canned food is fairly calorically dense. And at the same time, it, um, helps you cheat a little bit in terms of volume because it's also high in water. So if you have a dog that has that high of calorie needs, that means that they have um, higher water needs also, because you have to have so much water for every calorie that you consume. So you get a bump in your water intake as well as your calorie intake if you add in um, some canned food. That makes sense. So you are adding more into that and and let's just go into the water, adding the water to the food, because especially going back to our previous point, when you're traveling a lot of dogs, it's it's hard to get the necessary daily requirements of water when on the road. So I personally, this is really the only time that I kind of float my food is when I'm on the road, just to make sure that they're getting properly hydrated because nothing sets a hunt back more than arriving to go hunt and you drop the tailgates and your dogs are just dehydrated that maybe they're malnourished the past day or two. And then they've been cooped up in the kennel and all that. So it's like, you're just asking for a potential injury or at the very least, just poor performance 
And I've been, I've talked on this podcast before to where I do what's called a warm up run with my dogs. When I get on off on a long road trip, I don't go out and do a full on hunt. I'm just going to kind of give them a warm up. Uh, but part of my travel routine is floating the food. Do you currently still recommend that? Or do you recommend maybe floating even when you're not traveling? Is there any benefit to feeding dry or floating either way on a consistent basis? Thank you for asking that question. Um, we recommend three times the amount of water to food that you get. So if you're feeding on a regular basis, three cups of food, you need at minimum to provide your dog with nine cups of water. That's a lot. And, <laughs> yes, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, and people don't realize that. So that's a lot of times when people get crosswise during um, season because they may not be monitoring the amount of water that their dog drinks or they simply get super busy and and you don't even realize that you're not giving them the opportunity to ingest that much water because you, you're filling a bucket, the bucket's empty, you don't come back for a couple of hours, so you're not filling the bucket fast enough. Um, yeah, so 3x the amount of food that you're feeding, minimum. Add on to that heat, add on to that um, anticipation, add on to that a bad belly that comes with traveling sometimes. Everybody gets mild case of diarrhea at least once at the beginning of the season because they've been on the truck for too long and they're like, wow, I don't remember what it's like to do this work. Um, so I recommend two things. I recommend um, floating your food even off season. Uh, it just teaches the dog to finish what they're given and to take in the water in a, in a non-stressful environment. And that's really important because high type A style dogs, high drive dogs, think more like cats when they're thinking about work. And what I mean by that is cats don't have very strong drinking receptors or their brain doesn't tell them that they're thirsty. They, they don't recognize when they're thirsty and high performing sporting dogs start to think like that. They forget they're thirsty because they're vibrating with the idea of working. So if we can teach them off season that they should finish everything they're given in terms of water and food, then when it becomes muscle memory to drink everything that they're given when they give it, when they're given, it, it is given to them. The second thing to do is because you're busy on the road and you have too many dogs that you're trying to manage all at one time. Um, it's really good if you can get, get an individual container per dog and fill it with the amount that you know they need at a minimum. So with my guys, I have a, a jug labeled for each dog. So I know how much water they've consumed. So in general, they, they need about three quarters of a gallon on a regular day. And so everybody's labeled, we fill them up at night so that they're ready to go in the morning and we can, we can monitor water and take that way. The third thing to consider is in addition to floating your food, if you have concerns about your dog's hydration status, you can bait the water. And I'm not certain, maybe somebody's spoken about that on this pack podcast before. If not, I'm happy to chat through that part too. Have at it. Yeah. So when we talk about baiting the water, you can do it um, with a scoop of canned food at the bottom of it. So they'll drink all of the water to get to the canned food if they're familiar with the canned food at the bottom. Um, or you can put uh, just something that you know that they're going to like. Sometimes people cheat really bad and put a piece of beef jerky in the bottom or something. <laughs> <laughs> you, you look guilty. You look guilty there. No, nope, not me. No, um, not not me at all. I'm I'm the opposite. I'm I'm too much of a stickler. I don't let anybody have fun and give my dogs anything. <laughs> well, good for you. Um, I have seen many times guys will pull stuff out of their pockets and just drop it in the water. And beef jerky is something that almost everybody seems to have in their pocket these days. <laughs> but some sort of baiting of the water to again motivate them to drink the water because it is 
almost always water that's going to mess your dog up first. Um, and then after that, it's, it's usually carbohydrate status way before it's going to be protein or fat status of the dog. Well, that's interesting. If those are the main, uh, hiccups or something that can really kind of mess up a dog first, why, why is it that when we look at a bag of food, the formula is always protein and fat? As an industry, we have trained you guys to look at protein and fat content, which is a bit silly because it is really protein, fat, and carbohydrate in combination that make the diet a performance diet. Because with dogs who have jobs, they need um, readily available calorie sources, and that's where the carbohydrates come in. Um, because protein isn't really something that that acts as a body fuel. It acts as a nutrient to repair the body. Fat is a is is used primarily as fuel, but it takes um, a few minutes before using fat kicks in for dogs. So the first few minutes of any kind of work is always carbohydrate driven, and and carbohydrate sometimes gets a really bad name in pet foods, um, and we we like to uh, paint labels on certain in ingredients that provide carbohydrates and say that they're really, really bad because we think that all of our dogs are on the Atkins diet. Um, and that's not true. <laughs> we don't have ketogenic dogs. We shouldn't have ketogenic dogs. Um, so they need a diet that has a, a carbohydrate sources coming from corn or sorghum or wheat or rice, um, because that's readily available carbohydrates. And how, how similar is it to us again, you know, not obviously dogs, canids and, and humans are, are different, obviously, but there is some overlap to where, you know, it's the same way with us to where carbs is a, is a quick uh, energy source for us to tap into as opposed to the fat. So are they similar to us where they're automatically going to burn the carbs and maybe even the glycogen storage within the muscle strains before burning fat? And then this is how if we if we take a good enough job of the carbs on the front end, then maybe we don't end up with that really depleted, skinny, you know, ribs only dog at the end of a hunting trip. You're exactly right. Um, the, in, in terms of carbohydrate utilization, it's it's very similar to humans. Um, what's different is you can't really carb load. And in fact, even in long distance runners, carb loading isn't really a thing anymore. Um, consistent right. carb, consistent carb delivery is more important in humans and in dogs than carb loading like we used to talk about in long distance people. That's something I've been kind of nerding out on a little bit this year as I kind of get more into running and endurance running myself is I've learned that, you know, while while you can't necessarily carb load, you can still during the activity actually keep yourself fueled up and keep your glycogen storage reserves filled up to where you're tapping into that and you're not only burning fat at the end because that's that might be the goal of a lot of people especially when you start talking diet but there's also a reason why people say if you're going to work out on those type of diets and do some strenuous activities and exercise you need to look into maybe upping your carb intake on the front end exactly exactly the same for dogs so that that's really interesting. So back to the floating versus dry. Is there, you know, you hear about from some people, if you only float your dog food, you might miss out on some of the pros that dry kibble afford you, such as like dental care and, and getting certain things knocked off the teeth. Where do you land on that? Is there ever a, a, a pro like maybe just like every four or five days, maybe give them a dry, dry feeding? Or would you just promote or encourage somebody just to do dental care in another another avenue, I guess, or another way? I guess it, I, I would say that it is dog dependent. If you have a dog that you know um, is going to be that guy who's always on the line of 
of not being well hydrated or he's, you know, super top type A, great busy brain, can't remember to do stuff other than hunt. That's a dog that if I had to make a decision, I would be more concerned about his hydration status than his teeth because there are other ways to fix his teeth. If you have a dog who yeah. isn't always high all of the time, um, and an example I would give you is when we talk to Malinois people, their dogs chew on enough things that they don't need to worry about dental benefits of dry kibble versus not eating the wall. Um, but if you have a dog who isn't as uh, high in, in, in the brain, yeah, you could, you could just float off season. You could float twice a week just to remind them how to do it um, because you can't get ben- dental benefits. Mm-hmm. The key to understanding floating properly, though, is that a lot of people will put the water on the food and not serve it immediately. And then it can get soft and it can become mush. And obviously there's no dental benefits. If however you serve it right away, that kibble isn't going to absorb the water that quickly. So they will have to chew it. So there is some benefit, um, crunchy benefit to it. If they're fast eaters, if they're the guy who's not fast and they get distracted and then they've got mush. Yeah. There's no dental benefit at the end. And I know you're not a dental expert, but if you, you, if you do have a concern over the dental requirements of your dog, or maybe they're not getting the pros of that dry kibble to your point, you know, if you give it to them immediately before it becomes too soggy or mushy, kind of like a, a bad bowl of cereal or something, uh, what are some tricks? Is it, is maybe just a chew bone or, or a, a regular bone advisable to where maybe it doesn't mess up the actual nutrient balance that the, you know, quality food affords the dogs? Or would you say that like maybe one of those, uh, what is it, the dental greens or the milk bones or something like that? Will that jack up your dog's nutritional requirements if you just kind of do it on occasion? Yeah, I'm not a dental expert. Um, Certainly my area of expertise is far from the mouth itself. Um, What I would say is I think that there's some value in in chewing behavior, but you have to be careful. And it's certainly dog dependent. If you choose to use um, a dental treat of some sort that the dog can actually chew and ingest, then you have to, you do have to be mindful of the calories. There's more calories in those things than people realize. And so you'll have to scale back on calorie content of the, of, of the main meal itself. But obviously that's not, doesn't have to be an everyday thing. If you choose to use something that is hard and isn't digestible, it requires surveillance. So our recommendation is not to let your dog have something like that unsupervised um, because then you may end up with um, them biting off a piece and the next time you t- take it out of the kennel, you're like, wait, this looks shorter than it used to be. Um, yeah, right. and, and then that could be a surgery um, in your future, uh, worst case scenario, or uh, a chip tooth. So everything we, we recommend is that you should do that stuff supervised. So it kind of depends on the if you have the time to do that kind of thing. So I want to hear your take on how often we should be feeding dogs, because this is, uh, it seems like everybody has an opinion and I've, I've been told, you know, do twice a day, do three times a day, do once a day. I personally have only been doing once a day for kind of convenience and ease. And it, and it seems like my dogs work better. I don't like running my dogs on a full stomach or really anything in their stomach. I think personally they hunt harder, just like us, you know, that there's kind of uh, been studies proven that if we hunt on an empty stomach or, or in a fasted state, I should say, like we're, we're more aware or honed in on the actual process. I want to hear your take on that in terms of dogs. Do you find that dogs work harder or does it not matter? And it's just really a, a, 
personal decision on whether you want to take the risk of running your dog with food in their belly while they're out running at a, at a high pace? Yeah, it's a complicated question. My preference is to feed twice a day. Um, and the reason that, that we suggest that is that, um, it comes back again to carbohydrates. So if you are feeding twice a day, it provides a window of opportunity for immediate carbohydrate, um, availability. The other reason is that in terms of, of gut processing, again, say you, you, your dog requires four cups of food a day, that's a pretty big bolus of food to give, say, a 50-pound dog in, in one setting. So the ability of the gut to efficiently process that bolus of food is lower when it's that big than if it's half that size. So the amount of, of micronutrients that are, are sucked into the body from the, the GI tract and the amount of um, efficient calorie usage um, when you have that big of bolus is not as high as if you were able to spread it out. So that's probably why you've heard some people recommending three times a day. I don't think that three times a day is viable in a hunting situation, but I think that two honestly could be. Um, and, and if you feed right after work, and then you choose to feed later at night. So say you're done at three and you feed at four o'clock because um, everybody's cool. And then you feed again at nine or 10, right before you air them at night. That works. Um, clearly, you're not going to want to feed an hour before you go do stuff. Or, um, we recommend at least a two hour window before you go do things. So it depends on how early you're going to start your day. Circling back to your comment about if, if you are a little bit hungry, um, you're a little bit more on task. I can't remember the name of the researcher, but what they found was that dogs who had, um, it had, they were mildly fasted. So 12 plus hours fasted, um, actually didn't have enough carbohydrate to drive brain function compared to dogs who had been fed a meal four hours in advance. I think the name of the, the name of the, the article was to, to snack or not to snack for, for work hunting dogs. Um, it was a really good article where they, they looked at dog's ability to solve a task at 12 hours of fast and four hours of fast, I believe. Um, but I don't have that article at my fingertips right now. Anyway, dogs who had a snack, had something to eat before work, were better able to solve a complex problem than dogs who had been fasted. So that also drives our recommendation that if you can feed at least two hours before, then um, it gives the dogs the opportunity to have a fully functioning brain. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. So if you can do it before two hours, then the recommendation is to do it. Uh, what about, I was just going to say, again, circling back to the idea of make certain that the diet that you're feeding is the appropriate calorie concentration of the activities of your dog. So if you're feeding nine cups a day, because you're feeding the wrong diet, of course, you don't want to feed four and a half cups of food two hours before you're asking your dog to work. You know, right. you shouldn't have to feed that dog any more than two or three cups a day. If so, then, or per meal, for sure. If you are, you got to change diets. Regardless of who you're feeding today, you've got to change to something with a higher calorie density or that suits your dog better for some reason, because you just can't have that much volume in the gut. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense for sure. What about, say we don't have that two hour window, you know, especially duck hunters, you know, they get up, you know, they're, they're nuts and they, they get up at 3am to go do this stuff and, and get there to sunrise or whatever. Say that they're waking up just in time to get to the duck blind. They don't have a, the two hour window to feed their dogs. Uh, how, what's the process after the hunt that you would recommend feeding? Is there a certain window? You know, I know that 
again, not to compare ourselves to, to them, but there's that small window after we get done exercising that we can kind of replenish certain nutrients more optimally than, uh, than if we wait past that half hour, that magic line. Is there, is that kind of nutritional window available within dogs as well? It is. Um, so there is, it's that 30 minute window in, um, post exercise in dogs where the receptors in the gut that regulate transfer of carbohydrates and other micronutrients across the gut wall are open. It's like free day. It's this free 30 minutes where things can cross over the border really fast without a lot of regulation. So that's an opportune moment to replenish carbohydrates. And you can do that with a, a complete kibble. Um, some people choose to use um, different supplements instead. But the, the, the thing to keep in mind there is if during that 30 minutes, your dog is still hot and panting, the risk associated with feeding a hot dog are higher than the benefits of trying to replenish carbohydrates. So um, it, most of the time, unless you're in a really intense situation, you're really humid or really, really hot situation, your dogs are cool in 30 minutes, and then you can just feed a regular meal. That, that, that's a very good point. Something that people should really pay attention to is don't go... Don't go feeding your dog just because there's that optimal window is also be smart about it to where if your dog, especially right now, it's early season out on the prairie, everybody's out running. It's, it's going to take a while for the dogs to kind of cool down. So we talked about the the dogs in the fasted state. They, they can perform the task a little bit better given the window or at least the degree of the fasted state. You know, if you know, you don't want extremely fast at anything. I think it sounded like over 12 hours is kind of diminishing returns to where mentally there's maybe a, a brain fog, for lack of a better term, that kind of sets in. What other things nutritionally do we look at with our dogs and their ability to learn and work? I know that's something that you've kind of focused on in, in your career and in, in past about getting the dogs in that receptive mindset to actually learn and accomplish tasks. What outside of the, just the fasted state or how frequently we feed should we really be kind kind of paying attention to? Some of what we've already touched on. Um, so we, ta- we, we talked um, about it, it being a combination of um, carbohydrates and um, proteins and fats together, that it's not just um, fats and, and um, proteins. So that's important. The other thing is to understand the types of fats that are being provided in the diet. So we know that omega-3 fatty acids, um, particularly in young dogs, help help them um, solve tasks. So a lot of a lot of times we don't tend to think about those subtle nutrients and their effect on young dogs, which has an effect for the rest of their life. But feeding young dogs um, a diet that has omega three in combination with so fish oil fats, if you will, in combination with land animal fats, um, help dogs to learn things better and sets the foundation for learning skill. So that's really important. Um, in older dogs, different types of vegetable fats can preserve the brain. And so there's some work um, with a couple of different companies that looked at um, different types of, of, of vegetable fats helping to keep the brain young, if you will. But that's not typically a problem that we see in sporting dogs. Um, it's usually sedentary dogs that we see issues with in, in, in terms of, of that. Um, it is important that the types of fat that we use cross the blood-brain barrier to help 
drive brain function. And sometimes, and, and, and carbohydrates, again, circling back to how important the carbohydrates are. Sometimes you will see a dog who's suffering from a carbohydrate deficit um, in the field. And that's the guy who takes the extra step. You know better. We have done this. This is this is not what you do. Um, and it's just because his brain and his muscles aren't aren't talking to each other fast enough. And it's quite often carbohydrate related. So again, making certain that your dog has a diet that has readily available carbohydrates in it. Um, sometimes we see um, dogs who maybe they're, we feel like their noses aren't working quite so well. Um, and there's urban myth associated with types of fats that you should feed dogs in order to make their noses work better. Um, again, their noses usually work fine. It's that their brains aren't interpreting the signals from their noses appropriately. Circles back to carbohydrates and fats. If there's enough omega-3 fatty acids to um, manage uh, daily processes, then their brains work well. And if there's enough carbohydrates to fire properly in the brain and go, oh, wait, I know that smell and I know I'm supposed to do something when I hear, smell that smell. That's that's the the reason to have a well-balanced diet. Make sense? Absolutely. And that's that's some dangerous territory because out of those examples, I already know a handful of people that are going to now claim because their dog takes an extra step after being told, whoa, or cheating at the line, or maybe they didn't smell the bird. They're just going to be like, oh, it's, it's it's not the dog's fault. It's just, you know, he needs some more French fries and get some carbs in them. <laughs> right? It's the diet. It's always the diet. When you work for a pet food company, it's always the diet. I can tell you that. But actually, I, I think that that actually leads to, to a funny but fair point that um, diet will never fix bad conditioning or bad trainings. Diet is a complement to good training and good conditioning. It, that, I don't I don't think you can say that loud enough. And it's the same thing with us too, right? It's, you know, not to keep bringing it back to us, but I'm trying to make it relatable to most people to where it's just like diet, you know, while, while you can set yourself up for based on how your activity level or whatever, but it still doesn't correct your, you know, kind of day-to-day uh, cognition or your your daily habits that are going to improve yourself mentally and or physically, you still have to go do the work and the diet is just the support to do the work. Yes, exactly. Exactly the case. What about we we have some dogs out there with certain allergies? You know, what, what are some allergies that the average uh, owner or handler should be aware of? I don't, I don't want to make everybody hypochondriacs or look for something that's not really there and try and contribute or attribute certain qualities that their dogs are showing and just automatically assuming that their dog has a food allergy. But, you know, what are some of the more common ones or ones that us working dog owners should be aware of or on the lookout for in terms of their behaviors, maybe their their how their stool looks or, you know, just the results within their fur or skin or, or fill in the blank. You kind of take it from here. I think that first we need to um, establish the difference between an allergy and an intolerance. So an allergic reaction is generated by one part of the immune system, and it's generally an entire body immune response. So when we see dogs that have true allergies, whether that's an environmental allergy or a food allergy, it almost always manifests as some sort of compromise to the skin. So again, not to pick on my Labrador friends, but sometimes <laughs> those guys will end up with ear infections or atopy um, or just the generalized itchy scratchies. 
Again, a lot of times it's environmentally driven and not food driven. And intolerance, on the other hand, is a localized event that happens in the gut. So almost always food intolerances are the GI tract having the inability to understand what it's being presented with. And it's a localized immune response versus a, a, a systemic or full body immune response. So when there's an intolerance, say, for example, people, uh, to use humans as an example, people who have a gluten intolerance. A gluten intolerance means that you don't have the enzymes in your guts to properly process gluten, which is a really complicated, large protein. Same with dogs. They may have an intolerance to a particular ingredient because they don't have the enzymes in place or at high enough levels to process that particular combination of an, uh, of amino acids that make up that protein. And so it's a localized immune response because then the gut immune system says, hey, wait, I don't know what this is. This might kill us. I should probably have a response and marshal, the, marshal all of my friends to kick this out. That's entirely different process than a true allergic response. Most of the time, if dogs have a, a, a food issue, it's an intolerance, not an allergy. Um, most of the time, sporting dogs, other than our friends, the Labradors, don't tend to have true allergic reactions. Um, labs, for as tough as they are, labs have really fragile skin compared to the other sporting dogs. Um, so what I would, to sum all of those words up, food-related allergies are very, very uncommon, particularly in sporting breeds. We find it in other breeds. Um, if there is a food problem, it's almost always an intolerance. Um, it's not always to a protein. Sometimes it's to a carbohydrate source. Sometimes it's to a fat source. And that can result, can manifest itself as soft stool, um, inconsistent stool quality, but it can be quite hard to diagnose as a food issue. Because again, if you're talking about a sporting dog who likes his job, then his brain is talking to his belly and Sometimes when his brain talks to his belly, it opens up all of these receptors and water rushes in. And then you end up with diarrhea that has nothing to do with anything other than his brain's talking to his belly. Um, so in terms of, I, I hate, I, I am hesitant, Nick, to, to identify certain ingredients that people should be concerned with because there's no one ingredient that is the most likely to cause an issue. It's very dog dependent. I mean, we know um, that there are some some dogs who are intolerant of, of certain protein types and some dogs who are intolerant of certain grains, but it's so inconsistent. It, I, I hate, I hesitate to do that because I, again, I don't want people to go, oh yeah, that's why my dog doesn't do well because he, he he's allergic to wheat or he's allergic to corn. <laughs> right. And, and it takes um, a, usually it takes a gastro, a veterinary gastroenterologist to truly diagnose um, a food intolerance or a food allergy. And that's a 12 week process. And you, you just mentioned something that just jogged a, a question. It, it doesn't seem like it's as prevalent as it was just a handful of years ago, but your wheat-free diets, you know, it, your grain-free diets, where are we currently at in the market in regards to that? Because like I said, I used to, when I first entered this this world, you know, eight, nine years ago, however long it's been, I used to hear that incessantly. Like it, it was like a trend thing there for a while. And here lately, I can't recall hearing about it very much at all, especially with some of the heart concerns over the past few years. But I'll let you kind of take it from here and let us know, is it still a thing? Is it still advisable? Is it still talk to your vet? You know, just kind of walk us through where we stand with uh, grain-free diets. I guess what I would say in this particular sector um, with sporting dogs, feeding a grain-free diet makes it 
almost impossible to get enough calories into your dog because in general, to make a grain-free diet requires ingredients that aren't particularly digestible. So um, you you might be feeding something that has a similar protein and fat level on the guaranteed analysis, but the digestibility of that diet isn't going to be as high as a diet that has traditional grains in it. So you're not getting um, the efficient energy usage at, as you would expect. And maybe we should define, uh, step back a second and define digestibility first. Um, right. So when we talk about, and you see it all of the time on on packaging or on marketing materials, this is highly digestible, but nobody explains to you what digestibility is. Digestibility or uh, how the the diet is digested is a number that is based on an equation of how much of a nutrient you put into the dog and how much of that nutrient is excreted either in the urine or the feces. And the subtraction of what went in versus what went out tells you how much stayed in the body. So if we say a diet is 85% digestible, that means that only 15% of the, the diet's nutrients came out the other end. And therefore, 85% of the 100 grams, if you will, um, 85 grams of, of nutrient nutrition has been distributed around the body. It's the crossing over the, the gut barrier into the body that defines digestibility. So something can be 50% protein, but only 10% digestible. So then you really only are getting, so if if you have 50 grams of protein, that's 10% digestible. That only means that five grams of that protein actually crossed the gut barrier into the body to be used. If however, you have something that is, um, you have 50 grams of something that is, uh, math is a struggle for me. So 50 grams that is 75% digestible, then you have over 40 grams of protein that ends up inside the body to be used to do other things. Circling back to the original question of of grain-free diets versus diets that are more traditionally built, the ingredients required to make a grain-free diet, those carbohydrate sources, aren't usually very digestible, which is why when we talk about sporting dogs, those diets aren't always successful for sporting dogs. The jury is still out in terms of the cardiac issues. Um, There's a lot of work that's still being done about um, why some of the grain-free diets are linked to cardiac issues. And they believe that it's linked to the use of certain uh, ingredients called pulses or peas. So lentils, chickpeas, um, some of the other um, types of peas that, that, that have been um, used in those diets seem to be epidemiologically linked um, to the cardiac issues. But it also seems to be breed specific. So um, it may not be a problem for the pointer guys and the, and the setter guys the way it might be a problem for the, the golden guys. Okay. So the goldens are probably the the first one that comes to mind, obviously, is what you just mentioned. Are there any other sporting breeds that, that people might need to be aware of? Again, you know, with, with us and our activities and what we do, it's probably not a viable option anyway. But let's say somebody's listening to this with sporting breeds and they're currently on a grain-free diet. Again, not to creep everybody out. Talk to your vet. You know, don't just immediately go nuclear uh, on your dog's food source if everything's been going good just because you heard it on GDIY that, you know, this is a thing, but it's at least something to be aware of. Goldens are the ones that are top of mind. Um, in general, sporting dogs are pretty healthy, except for the things that we do to them, right? We overexercise them and then they <laughs> right. pull out a knee or they, um, 
but in terms of heart health, most of the time, those guys all have pretty good hearts. Um, Goldens, we, we know they have this issue. Um, labs, again, sometimes their hearts, um, they can murmur. Um, occasionally, you'll see a murmur in, in some of the pointers, but not very often, to my knowledge. Where do we stand on raw food diets? This is something that's still kind of sticking around. Everybody's still doing it. Is it is it is there anything to it beyond just the the convenience of feeding kibble? You know, like what are the pros and cons of if somebody's considering to doing raw food? Is it is it something to where I can only imagine trying to weigh and measure and, and do all that work on the front end of a long hunting trip? But, you know, if, if somebody has the motivation or desire to do that, is there anything that you would be concerned about or worried about that your dogs might not be getting that they would in the actual kibble? I think this is such a funny question, Nick. And the reason I think it's a funny question is twofold. One, um, there's old, old data that shows that Americans can't even feed their kids a complete and balanced diet. Um, and that in general, about 20% of Americans have some sort of subclinical micronutrient deficiency because we, we can't feed ourselves. So I think it's funny that Americans who want everything to be convenient are on this, I'm going to cook for my dog. It'll be great. <laughs> it's so natural and it's going to be so much healthier. We can't feed ourselves, let alone our dogs or our kids. Um, so I think it's funny. Yeah. Um, but the things to that, to be concerned about. It works for some people um, on the show dogs uh, side of the world. Those guys do it a lot. Um, they put a lot of time into it. I think that from my perspective as a nutritionist, the biggest concerns are micronutrient content um, because for two reasons, there's something called um, uh, uh, recipe drift. And what I mean by that is I'll give you a, an example from my family. My grandma used to make this amazing casserole that she called six in one and it had six ingredients in one pot. Hence the name. She gave it to my mom. My mom gave it to me. I don't make it the way my grandma made it because I don't like onions. So I put more peppers and less onions. So the nutrient profile of that casserole is different that I, because I make it this way versus the way my grandma made it. So somebody may get a professionally designed raw diet and they may send their partner to the store and the partner's mad at the dog this week because it did something inappropriate <laughs> and they're not going to spend or, or such and such on brown rice, right? White rice is on sale. That's all this dog needs. It's rice. That changes the nutrient profile of the diet or other side. I really love my dog this week. So instead of chicken thighs, I'm going to be buy chicken breasts to feed my dog. You've effectively taken out the majority of the endogenous iron in that diet for that week. So if you're going to use a raw diet, you have to stick to the formula or recipe that was given to you religiously because it's designed to deliver nutrients in a certain way. Um, and the problem with using fresh ingredients is, is that there's no, uh, most people who do it at home don't have the ability to do quality control for micronutrients to know the iron level or the magnesium level in the diet of those ingredients that week. That's the advantage of, of, of companies that have um, equipment to measure that stuff. The other concern, um, and, and people have often talked about the, the concern for um, cooties in the food for the people, right? You know, be careful if you have somebody immunocompromised, don't, don't do raw diets in, their, in the house because you'll spread it all over the house. And that's true. But at the same time, we don't have enough data to know how 
um, different loads of bacteria affect the gut of our dogs. It's a, it's a developing topic. And there's a couple of different university students, some amazing work on the microbiomes of dogs and how surges in certain um, bad bacteria affect those microbiomes, but we don't know. So sometimes feeding a raw diet um, increases the, the surge in some of those bad bacteria and you, you're not aware of it. So it can work as long as you're really um, religious in your recipe and in your cleanliness um, and your ingredient handling. But I would circle back to you. Why would you make more work for yourself? <laughs> that, you know, some people have done it. I know a few that have been doing it long term. You know, it seems like it's one of those things people uh, people like the intention behind it or the idea behind it and, and they intend on following through. Then they check it out. They see how much work kind of goes into it. And to your point, it's most of us don't even feed ourselves properly. I mean, I, I kind of nerd out on it from time to time for myself. And I know for a fact I don't hit all the micronutrients that I'm supposed to on a daily basis. So if I can't do it for myself or my kid, I'm, I'm sure as heck can't make the commitment to try even attempting it with my dog. So, and the, the microbiome within the gut, like that's, that's a really interesting topic because even within ourselves, you're constantly hearing this week, eat that. And then the next week, Oh no, 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 no. Don't eat that. Eat this. And if we can't even figure that out based on ourselves, Figuring that out for dogs, it, but you know, it it, it kind of goes hand in hand to where science is an ever evolving situation. You know, the context is king. There's so much nuance to this, to where it's just like, oh, last week that was horrible to feed the dog, but this week it's okay to feed the dog if X, Y, and Z takes place, and and that's why ultimately it comes back to the convenience or the trust for me is you guys figure this out on your end and I'm just, I'm trusting you guys because y'all aren't going to go out there and push an ineffective product because it's like, if y'all did, then y'all would be out of business. Right. And so just the fact that we can come on and have a conversation with all these factors, I'm going to trust y'all's expertise or research into this, even with some quote unquote recalls from other brands out there on the market. I'm going to trust the brands more so than I'm going to trust my own personal research and and attention that I can offer to my dog's diet from day to day. I appreciate that a lot. You know, as a science nerd, um, I went to school a long time to know the bits and pieces that I know about how the, how the gut works. And it's my area of expertise, right? And it's a passion. And I think that you'll find that that's the case for many nutritionists and veterinarians that are in, in the pet food industry. We live for it. You, your passion is, is training hunting dogs and having really good hunting dogs. I don't know what you know. You don't know what I know. So if we have a relationship where we can trust that the other person is doing always has good intentions for, for the animal that we're trying to serve, which is the dog and, and, and having a great relationship with our dog and having a long relationship with our dog, then, then that's when it work, works best, right? Yeah. Trust the people that actually have the knowledge that you wish to obtain. You know, that that's, that's the shortcut I'm always looking yeah. for. I don't know if shortcuts the right way, way to phrase it, but you know, if it takes X amount of hours of research for me to sit down and figure it out, as opposed to just going to find a good resource that already has that knowledge that I can kind of bounce ideas off of. I mean, essentially, that's what I've been doing with this podcast for four plus years now is I'm curious about something. Let's go find somebody that actually knows the answers and let me grill them as opposed for me trying to reinvent the wheel back at home. Real. Oh, that's that's a, probably a pretty good word. I feel like you've asked me some tough questions. 
<laughs> well, I hope so. You know, hopefully I didn't come on and bore you with, you know, just mundane questions like that. <laughs> well, as as we kind of wrap this up, what did we miss? What did I overlook? You know, if if you're in my seat, what's a question that you would be asking if you were to be, if the tables were turned and you were doing my job? I don't know if you missed anything. I think that the things that I would reiterate as really important um, when it comes to sporting dogs heading into season is um, making certain that you have the right diet for the job that you're expecting your dog to do. And that 75% to 125% window of, of, of how much to feed, I think is really critical particularly as we're heading into season. I think the, the, the second thing that's really important and, and cannot be overemphasized is, um, hydration. And, and we spent a lot of time talking about hydration. Um, but I, I would really like it if your listeners remembered for every one cup of food, they need three cups of water minimum before you ask your dog to do any work and that measuring the amount of water. So you have a tracker for how much your dog really ingests would be really helpful. And I think more impactful on your dog than most people realize if you um, track and are intentional with your hydration strategy. And then the third thing that we already talked about too, which is uh, food is never going to fix conditioning or training. It's only um, a tool to help enhance it. And if you don't use it properly, it, it, it can be a detriment. If you overfeed your dog and don't condition your dog, then you just have a chubby dog who's not performing well. Yeah. No, I absolutely. And I should end it there, but I did have one more question pop up into my head. And and it is it is relevant this time of year as we do the traveling and stuff like that. Back to like very early on when we we're talking about the anticipation or the anxiety that comes along with with travel. Some dogs get the run. Some dogs get jacked up stomachs. What is, in your opinion, the best way to handle something like that? Because you hear from everybody, fast them. You hear everybody, don't don't float the food. Uh, you hear some people that talk about, you know, some probiotics, throwing on some propectolin or Fortiflora, something like that. What is the best way to handle an upset stomach that doesn't sacrifice time in the field on the hunting trip? You know, we travel 20 hours away. We want to hunt the dog. The dogs want to hunt and sitting them on the bench and fasting them. And then to your point, then we're hunting with a malnourished dog that maybe has some brain fog and not performing at their peak. So what is the the best practice for handling an upset stomach? Yeah, that's a really tough question, Nick. And it's so dog dependent. I, I think some of that goes back to pre-training, right? So training your dogs during the off season to eat consistently um, is important and to drink consistently is important. I think the other thing too is, um, and this is not me telling any dog um, trainer or hunter how to do their job, but as, as the daughter of a weekend warrior, um, my dad was not consistent. And I can say that there are lots of people in my career who haven't been consistent to create um, practice situations. So you talked about doing a practice hunt with your dogs when you get there and not expecting them to perform right out of the gate. I think that's really critical. So if you have dogs who aren't used to riding in the truck and then jumping out and doing their stuff and they only do it you know, starting September 1st and they haven't done it since February, of course, that's going to be hard on your belly. Um, so some, that's more about, um, environmental and management and husbandry and not so much about food. I think that there are lots of people who are successful with some management strategies that include probiotics or other interventional things. 
Um, and some of those can be very effective depending on your dog. I don't really recommend fasting. Um, one for two reasons. One, because it can mess with the brain if there's not a carbohydrate, a lot of carbohydrates available. And two, what we've just spoken about, which is um, fasting. Veterinarians have finally figured out that fasting dogs who have bad bellies actually messes up the microbiome and it takes them longer to recover. Um, so I would be hesitant to fast. Um, that's really just to make your life easier, not to make your dog feel better. Yeah. Just, just kind of hope it goes away, right? It's like, oh, we're, yeah. we're just going to give this time. I'm not going to do anything to add to the problem. We're just going to hope it goes away. And, uh, it, but, you know, it, it's it's curious to me because there's a lot of things our, ourselves included. Again, we're making that full circle is sometimes like the best thing to kind of get our guts realigned is to kind of fast and and, and get that uh, effigial healing uh process rolling and so like it, it kind of when other people and trainers or vets have said that to where it's like all right i can possibly kind of see that but to your point they have a different system they're operating on a different program than what we are day to day yeah yeah they're not expecting performance right so when veterinarians tell you to fast your dog because your dog has a bad belly they don't have an expectation that your dog's going to go work six hours yeah and that's a, that's a very important uh point in the equation well Dr. Jill, I could keep hounding you with a whole bunch of questions if we had more time, but I know you got better things to do uh, for the rest of the day. I just appreciate you kind of taking time and and answering a lot of these questions. And it's always good, especially this time of year when we're on the road hunting and working on your dogs as much as we are to keep in mind that proper fuel that, you know, if you have a dog go down just because you aren't feeding it right or the right formula or the right uh, quota, so to speak, you're just harming your trip and something that you've been looking forward to all year long. So if you're going to spend all this time and money planning this trip, spending money on gas, hotels and stuff like that, take a half an hour research and figure out what's the right amount of food and what type of food to feed your dogs. And that's, again, you know, I feed you canoe, but I haven't had a single problem on it since I've switched. I, I decreased the amount of food that I had to feed them day to day, and I've never had a performance issue while feeding you canuba. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. I personally enjoy it and I swear by it. It does right by my dog. So I just uh, appreciate you coming on and kind of sharing your knowledge over the years as, as you've kind of come at this from a, a really fascinating standpoint on not only just feeding them and keeping them healthy, but the mindset, how to keep them active and actually doing the task uh, to the level that we hope they do. I will leave you with this one thought because it sums up what, what, what you just said. And, and that is that it, if you're going to hunt with dogs and it's one of the most important parts of your hunt, investing in them financially and, and, and emotionally is the most important thing, right? If you're going to put all this money in, into all of the other parts that go with hunting, make certain that you treat your dogs right by finding the right food and, and the right training for them. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Everybody stay tuned for the outro. Dr. Jill, thanks again. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, there you have it, folks. Everything that you could possibly need to know about the considerations of your dog's diet and refueling your dog as you hit the road to go hunting and hit all the trips that we've been dreaming about all year. Thanks again to Dr. Jill Klein uh, of Yukonuba for joining us and giving us all that great information. This episode was presented by Standing Stone Supply, DT Systems, Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, as well as Upland Gun Company. There was a few things that I took away from that conversation that was interesting and and really just important to me overall. But the the main thing that comes to mind here is the the simple way she put it of knowing when to possibly consider changing formulas on that 75 to 125 percent ratio you know the fact if you look at the back of the label it says if your dog weighs this then feed x and if you start feeding your dog and if you're going below 75 percent or above 125 percent of that mark then you should be considering changing formulas. To me, that's just the the easiest way that I've heard to consider whether you're feeding the correct formula. And it's really imperative, especially with so many options and different brands out there for anybody that's listening to this, whether you feed Yuka and Uber or not, the principles of dog nutrition are the same. It's, it's the same way we look at training of you know, the fact that if you train this way and I train that way, it's like, well, there's big differences there. But either way, the dog's still learning for the same reasons because dog training is dog training. The principles are the same. And so it kind of overlaps with this type of conversation. So no matter how you're feeding, what brand you're feeding, what have you, you know, take some of this stuff to into consideration. You know, there's a lot of good information here that that she provided, especially in terms of just trying to get the most out of our dogs. And and again, I've been feeding Yukonuba for, it's been three years now, I think, and I haven't looked back. I mean, I've been perfectly happy with the performance and the results of the, uh, of the dogs. And, and yeah, it just, it's, it's really worked well for us. And, and um, yeah, I'm I'm really happy with that. So with all that being said, if if you want to try Yukonuba, then by all means, uh, check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gundog yourself. We have a couple uh, coupon codes that allow you to kind of get in, get your foot in the door, and, and get fifty percent off and and get you started. If you if you have any interest in trying it after listening to that episode with Jill, because. Again, I, I, I was really pleased with that. We covered a lot of ground and a lot of considerations uh, that that come up often when you start talking about nutrition and, and fueling your dogs the right way. So hopefully you found some value in it. I, again, I really enjoyed it. So with that being said, I, again, Patreon, you know, patreon.com forward slash gundog yourself, even outside of the coupon codes with Yukonuba, we do additional bonus content, early releases on videos, the monthly bonus episode with Nick Larson over at the Bird Shop podcast uh there's a lot of cool stuff it's kind of turning into kind of a sense of community especially as we do try and incorporate more zoom rooms in the future that's something that uh, i've been toying with the past few months on and off and and it seems to uh it's a lot of fun just kind of getting to know different patrons and and all that but again it's it's hunting season i'm not going to keep you too much longer i i appreciate you as always 
for uh, hitting download and hitting play. I hope you're on the road and hope you hope you're having the dream of of a lifetime, uh, the trip of a lifetime, I should say. But uh, with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up again. Thanks for everybody for hitting download and play. Share it with a friend. Hit subscribe so you can catch the next episode of GDIY. And happy hunting. Be safe out there. Thanks, guys. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.